Hello, and welcome to Is Anyone Listening? The first Joseph Rowntree Foundation podcast in which we talk to people on low incomes about the issues that affect them. My name's Aisha Hazarika. I was a former Labour Party's political advisor working on women and equality issues. I'm now a broadcaster, columnist and political commentator. What we've tried to do in this episode is really turn the debate on its head. And when it comes to talking about poverty, you often have a quite distorted narrative which just relies on statistics and doesn't actually speak directly to the people who are living it on a day-to-day basis. So that's what we're going to do right here today. We're going to be speaking with people living in a Brexit-consumed Britain to hear their stories, experiences and thoughts on the issues that are affecting them. We'll be talking about what might happen to poverty in the UK after Brexit and what should be done to make the biggest difference. And I'm delighted to be joined by three absolutely fantastic guests. We have Shirley from Keithley, Hello. Opwe from Kent, who's uh, from Kent originally and is now studying in Leeds. Hi. And finally, we have Pete from Salford. Hello. Hi. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining me. I wonder if I could just begin by just asking you all to just tell me a bit about your own story and your lived experience of what poverty is like in the United Kingdom. Shirley, if I could start with you. Well, to start with, I didn't even realise that I was in poverty but I've had a few life experiences that have catapulted me into that abyss. I was originally a a registered general nurse um, so I had a full-time job, a very responsible job. I was a homeowner, uh, I was married, well I've actually been married twice, had led an interesting life, ended up with three children as a consequence but divorced. Had to leave home in very domestically challenging circumstances um, after the second marriage. Ended up homeless with my children. We were in a hostel. I was on unpaid maternity leave. I ended up with depression because of the trauma. Um, we were rehomed in a council flat, which later became a housing association flat. I wasn't able to work initially due to the due to being depressed. And then I did manage to get a small part-time job working 16 hours a week, which wasn't sufficient really to live on. And then I ended up injuring myself. I've ended up with a spinal cord condition called degenerative cervical myelopathy. And I've ended up on disability benefits, for which I've had to fight tooth and nail for. I've had to go to tribunal three times. I've lost my motability car and I'm literally hanging on by my fingernails. Well, well, thank you for sharing that. Opwe, what's your kind of experience of, of the situation? Um, well, a first-generation immigrant from Nigeria. My mom is a nurse. And when we moved to the UK, we had no recourse to public funds. So that made things quite difficult as there are five children. I have been able to go to university and I've been fortunate enough to have received a scholarship to do my PhD. But the nature of a a full-time PhD means that I'm not able to particularly do extra work because I'm teaching as well. But um, teaching within a university context doesn't necessarily afford you any sort of security because you're, uh, I guess, uh, a glorified um, zero-contract worker, Mm -hmm. zero-contract hour worker, essentially. And also I have my younger sister who lives with me. She suffers from anxiety and depression. And so she hasn't been able to work. So I've been using my scholarship to look after myself and her. So you're also a carer? Yes, uh, I also care for her. And um, a few months ago, the depression was so bad and the suicide ideation got so bad that 
I thought that we would lose her. So that also had an impact on my research, on my ability to work and um, just trying to do the PhD. Wow, well, thank you for for sharing that. And Pete, your story. Yeah, I mean, I come from a very sort of ordinary family growing up um, down in Oxfordshire. When I was 14, 15, there were some very, very traumatic events which happened which were outside of my control. And really, the mental health issues which weren't dealt with 30 years ago led me to poverty. I ended up on the streets, unable to hold down jobs. I'm now a gardener. I I work as a garden designer and have done for nearly 20 years. That has been therapy for me and brought me to a place where seeing the skills I use as a gardener to build a garden are exactly the skills that are needed to build uh, a community. Well, listen, thank you so much for your honesty and, and, and sharing with us the, the realities of your life. Tell me a little bit, starting the show, how do you feel the narrative about poverty is discussed in this country by uh, politicians and by the media as well? Well, it's for me, it feels very, very one-sided veering very, very towards the negative. You've got this issue of striver versus skiver. You've got the issue of people being deserving and undeserving poor. There's this narrative of people being lazy, feckless, stupid. They've brought it on themselves. And it's infuriating because I don't feel I fit into that narrative. I ended up in poverty through massive, massive, catastrophic changes in my life that were beyond my control. And I would desperately argue with anybody that no one chooses to be in poverty. Mm. It is not a lifestyle choice, despite what the narratives say. And do you think programmes like Benefit Streets and this, you know, quite a hostile environment in some of our tabloid press sort of promulgating this view that there's somehow this luxury lifestyle to be to be led on benefits. I presume you think that's probably contributed. I think it's a strategy to make sure that politicians never really deal with the real issues that are at, at, at hand and to um, divide and conquer. Because if you pit different people, marginalise people against each other, they don't have enough time to be able to consider the real issues that are there. Watching the shows like Benefit, I, I won't lie, but I know that people like my mom who watch that show and be like, oh yes, this is really bad. And then when I tried talk to her about the reality of it she agrees that it's wrong and it's just sensation and your mother was somebody who had worked very hard yes. herself hadn't she yeah five children yes. on a nurse's salary yeah that's correct um, you know so and pete i mean the issue of poverty became a very socially divisive issue particularly in the run-up to the eu referendum oh, yeah, yeah, yeah but i think it came from a number of sources. I think it came from people with self-interest, people who have suddenly found that they had a platform where it was socially acceptable to be racist, mm-hmm. where people could show their nastiest side. And, and you, most... you, you said in Salford you saw some oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Which um, was quite leading up to it. The debate wasn't about the economics of leaving or staying. It wasn't about the impact of losing a relationship with other countries. It was purely about the number of immigrants that we were going to have dumped in the city, as as it was as it was put. We had uh, graffiti all, all all across areas that I work in, some of the poorest areas that I have actually benefited from EU grants. 
Now, moving to sort of the the politics. I mean, one of the arguments is that this country has become so consumed by Brexit. We're in a sort of Brexistential crisis, as I like to call it. And no one else is really thinking about a lot of these other really important issues, you know, which affecting poverty from sort of universal credit to not having enough um, social housing and all that kind of thing. What's your message to the politicians? I mean, do you feel that politics listens to your voices? Oh, hell no. <laughs> oh, hell no. Are we all, everyone's nodding. Is yeah, it's nodding furiously. Oh, no. Pete, tell me, what's your... Um, I think you are... You are in a paradox. You are in a room with a group of people who have no direct experience or understanding of an issue that they are talking about. And they are making decisions based on statistics. These are politicians, not the people in this room. We're highly expert. The politicians, I believe, are coming from a place of give us the, the statistics, sorry. Give us the numbers. Give us the data. The data never actually tells the story. The data can be manipulated. It, it's that thing of they have no concept of what it is like to decide whether to feed your three-year-old child or put 50p in the meter for the electric. Mm. They have no comprehension of what it's like when your washing machine breaks down and you can't afford to get it repaired. But you also can't afford to go to the laundrette. Mm. Mm. They have no concept of what it's like to be told you have a three-month sanction on your benefits. Now go and try and find a way to live. Yeah. So it's that real lack of understanding. I think, I think to be fair to politicians, I think a lot of them have good intentions, but they are very much institutionalised into... I think the use of the word statistics yeah. is, very, is very good. There's a sort of mindset in the political world, including think tanks, and also where they sort of say, look... If I can't see a graph, then it's not mm. real. But Shirley, you've been, you've actually been gone into Parliament recently to, to try and explain what life is like out there. Tell us a bit about the work you've been doing. Well, I've been campaigning with Gingerbread, the lone parent charity, because obviously I'm a lone parent, and also an ambassador for Fair by Design, who are campaigning to end the extra costs of being poor. I sort of fell into activism by accident, but it was a great experience to go to Parliament on behalf of Jim Dribbred initially, purely to give a panel of MPs, and there was somebody from the House of Lords as well, plus selected guests, just a lived experience of my poverty, because I can only speak for myself. I can imagine what it's like for other people, but we're all as unique as we are, so we all have different experiences, even though we share poverty in common, if, if that makes sense. And to be able to give my point of view to a group of sympathetic people I found overall because it was a cross-party APPG so all main parties were represented and I think to be fair people are trying to they are trying to understand but it is very difficult when to get it across in statistics that you need a more qualitative approach to all of this and that's why I think the lived experience is really important to get the message across that we're not just numbers we are real people with real stories, struggling against real, real hardships. And hopefully this is what mm. talking about it's all about. Try raising the awareness that, well, I'm losing my train of thought here. No, I'm really sorry. No, 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 absolutely. Because look, it's it's a very emotive, powerful mm. subject. And, you know, as you said, Pete, sometimes 
what I think people in more affluent positions fail to realise mm-hmm. is that people who are in poverty have to make a series of really difficult choices that we take for granted. I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't want to sound as though I am saying all pol- politicians are devils. They're mm-hmm. not. No, they're not. I believe that they are people who have to consider a whole country. They have to consider what's best for a whole country. But perhaps actually seeing that the decisions they make have impact on people's lives and understanding the impact that that, that, that decision has is more important than saying the statistic doesn't show this. Yeah. Perhaps understanding that when what's good for British business, for example, with Bright House and and other companies that are allowed to charge huge rates of interest. That's good for British business, but it's not good for the person that actually has to use the service. No, and, you know, in terms of if there was some practical things that you would like to see from the government that would make life better, what are some of the practical things that politicians can do all I think Shelley mentioned um, earlier when we're having a discussion about the notion of being over indebted. I think people assume that because you have financial literacy, that you have some understanding of how banks work, that that means that you should be given a credit card and that there is no understanding, there's no compassion when you're experiencing difficulties or you're unable to pay back. Because one example is. Uh, on one hand, I, I'm, going, I'm, I'm at university, but there was a point where things were so bad at home that I had to give some of my student grant to pay the mortgage. Wow. And then what, what do you then do in order to make up for that? How do you then eat? Because if you, if you, if you lose the house, that, means, like, that meant that my four siblings and my parents would be on the street. Yeah. It doesn't matter how good I think I am. It doesn't matter if I think I will get a good job when I finish. The fact is, I needed a solution there and then. And I think it will be good for politicians to understand that those things need to be taken into consideration. If you say you want us to have access to means of getting out of poverty by giving us um, opportunities to go into university, why privatize the student loan organization? Why make it a student loan company that now they chase you up and down, they, they harass you to get repayment, even though you tell them you might be in continuing education yeah. or you might be depressed. But those things are not taken into consideration and things like getting rid of the education yes. maintenance yeah. allowances yes. mm-hmm. the issue of debt i think yeah. is a is a really really um pertinent one and shirley i mean i was very struck by the work that you've been doing in terms of you cited some some research in the university of of bristol when yes. we were talking earlier and just just talk us through that because this is sort of the kind of the additional costs the reality of the costs of what it is to to be in poverty and some of that does involve debt which you people get into through no fault of their own it is a sort of perfect storm of circumstances yeah. hitting them do you want yeah. to just explain a well bit? what you're talking about is basically the poverty premium that's the extra costs of essential goods and services that people on lower in- incomes have to pay and when i say people in low on low incomes we're talking working poor as well as, as those like me on benefits so for example the university of bristol research from 2016 um, said that there's actually quite eight areas where the poverty premium impacts on people and depending on how impacted you are by these eight elements depends on how much you are paying over and above 
someone on what could be considered a normal income. So the research suggested that people um, living in, for example, housing association or council properties on a prepayment metre, they are the most impacted by the poverty premium because generally speaking, those sorts of flats or homes Mm. with prepayment metres, they tend to be charged a higher rate for their fuel than a normal standard rate metre. So um, if you want a direct debit or something like that, it, it'll be much lower. Well, that. not just that, even well, not so much that, but actually you have to go to a shop to load up your... It's an electronic key. Back in my day, it was a paper token, which you actually bought from the corner shop. So you have to go to the shop, load up the key, pay some money over the counter, take your key back, put it in the meter, and that would load up your meter and you could run your lights. But once that money had gone your lights went out basically Mm. if you are able to access the internet with which a lot of people living in poverty can't do they either don't have the computer equipment they can't afford the internet access they can't get to the libraries where the the free internet access is because the libraries are closing down it might be a fact that you can't actually travel to the library Mm -hmm. because there aren't the bus services to get you there if you had to take a bus or you may be made homeless or you may be made homeless on the street i mean homeless people are are criticized for having mobile phones now but to access any goods or services online you need internet and for some who are having to claim things like universal credit or disability benefits if they're not able to access appointments and things online or do job searches online they get penalized but that's a slight digression Mm. going back to the The sort of premium the, the poverty premium itself so yes so if you haven't got access to the internet i'm fortunate i've always had access so i've always been able to shop around for the best deal i change my electricity and gas provider every year to try benefit there are people in the position where they can't do that Mm -hmm. there are people who are not able to get a current account because you obviously get credit checked for a current account I've fortunately got one. I've had to downgrade mine so I don't have an overdraft because I did get into debt. But there are people out there that their bank account won't allow for direct debits. So you're getting, again, examples of poverty premium. You pay more for your electricity, more for your gas. You're having to pay for paper bills. Yeah. You are forced onto a standard rate tariff if you can't pay by direct debit. And then I presume as well there's the additional thing of if some crisis happens and you need some cash quickly, yep. who are you going to get that money from and the APR rates? That's right. Well, you've obviously got the, the choice of the doorstep lender, the, the uh, so-called loan sharks. They're obviously Wonga's gone, been there and done that and now they've gone out of business, which is not a bad thing. But my worry is that the loan sharks are going to step in to breach the gap. You can only rely on family support if you've got family support for so long because they're going to get sick and tired if you go in there. And also they might not have the funds either to Absolutely, help yeah. And certainly a lot of people, the one limitation of the University of Bristol research is that it doesn't consider people who actually avoid the poverty premium by actually going without. Mm. I'm in that situation now. I've got so many things that need repair or replacement in my house and I cannot afford to do it. So people are actually going without and even they are not being captured by that research. Well, I think the thing that is so devastating about, about this is that, you know, so much of this can just come down to circumstances and things beyond your control. And then suddenly you are in this very, very precarious Situation and it kind of loops us back to what we were talking about at the beginning of our discussion, which is how we can try and change the narrative around poverty. How can we try and make things a bit less, you know, of a sort of punishment rhetoric in a hostile environment? How do we try and how do we try and tell our stories? And why do you think stories 
can change people's minds in a way that statistics can't, Pete? Well, man is a storytelling animal. He, we, we have told... Or woman. Well, <laughs> I, I, I say man as in mankind. Uh, sorry, Careful, woman. you're in a room full of women. <laughs> I'm over 40, I was taught it was mankind. <laughs> um, no, as humans, we tell stories. We tell stories to understand the world around us. Telling true stories, true experience, is a way of actually changing the way a person thinks. And it's really powerful. It's not about so-and-so told me that 50% of all people in, in debt smoke. You know, they, it, it's not something irrelevant. It is Pete's in debt, and Pete's in debt because something happened when he was 14 that started a chain of events. And he's never quite been able to find the way to get onto the sure footing. And everybody has that story. That's the point at which we stop being British, we stop being white, we stop being male or female, and we just go back to that thing of being humans who can look at each other and go, I thought I was the only one, but now I've got a friend. Mm. I've got somebody who understands what it's like. And has some empathy. Has some empathy, but also if that person is there making a decision that impacts other people they will perhaps remember that. And Okwe, what do you feel about the language that is used around the poverty debate? Particularly now as an, as an academic, what's your sort of take on it? I think, to be perfectly frank, I think a number of academics tend to come from, you know, middle class and upper middle class families so they don't have experience of this so they when they do the research is very much sanitized and very yes. well we're going to focus on the statistics and you know don't engage in certain types of research particularly if you're from certain groups because it becomes me search um, to mean that you're just talking about yourself and it's not objective because objectivity is so important so that's seen as somehow what less credible yes yes it is it's seen as less credible less important it's not as you know, it's not important. But um, nowadays, there's more of a discourse around impact. So that could be a way of um, introducing different stories. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know, Chimamanda mentioned the um, the danger of the single narrative, of the single story. And I think what would be helpful would be to have lots of different opportunities for people to talk about themselves, to not um, use for academics and people, policymakers, to not always be the ones um, giving people the voice. People don't need to be empowered. They have power. What is happening is you're stopping them from exercising the power. So what needs to happen is people need to have access to spaces to talk about their issues, to talk about what led them into poverty and ways of getting out of it. People have the solutions themselves. Yeah, and they will. Yes, they yeah. will. And Shirley, how does it make you feel? You know, you've, you've had an extraordinary life and some very difficult times. Mm. But when you hear people talking about scroungers and people sponging off the state and things, how does that make you feel on a personal level? Well, it just makes you feel utterly worthless. I mean, being in poverty anyway makes you feel like a total failure. I feel like I failed myself. I feel like I failed my boys, because I've got three boys. I feel sometimes like they're ashamed of me, which I never thought I'd actually say. Um, I'm sure they're absolutely 
not. This is partly why it, it, this is what's fueling me now to actually go out and tell my story because I'm trying to speak for the people who don't feel confident enough to speak for themselves. Has that been a cathartic and positive experience for you? Absolutely. Well, I'll be honest with you. I didn't actually realise I was in poverty until I actually re- read through the Joseph Roundtree Foundation wow. work that I've been exposed to recently. Um, I just thought life was tough, you just get on with it, and it's all my fault. <laughs> yeah. Now I realise I've been subjected so, to so many structural constraints as a woman, as a disabled person, as a lone parent, that it is very hard to escape from this sinkhole that I've been disappearing down. And as I mentioned before, I feel constantly that I'm hanging on with my fingernails, not just the fingertips. And for people to call me a scrounger and feckless and lazy, okay, I don't work, but I still work hard as a parent. How dare they? They don't know my life. And is that the message you would give to, let's say, some of our more right-wing tabloid newspapers? I would say to them, anybody can end up in poverty due to circumstances beyond their control. Absolutely anybody. Your life can turn around just like that and you start on this catastrophic fall and there's no safety net yeah. and especially oh, especially with uh, the benefit systems which is actually should be social security. Yeah. It's, it's not a benefit. It's the right thing to do to look after people when they're having difficulty. There's so many holes in it now, so many people falling through the cracks and it's not right, especially when we are supposedly the sixth richest nation in yeah, the world. Yeah, the sixth yeah. biggest sort of nation. So with obviously the big B word coming down the track, how do you think your lives will change after Brexit? Now, I know this is a slightly difficult question because none of our politicians even know what Brexit is going to look like, but assume we do leave. What do you think will happen? Do you think there will be a big difference? Or do you think, for all the heat and the sound and the fury, politicians will just carry on being politicians and they still won't listen or learn about why Brexit happened and they still won't listen to you? What do you think will happen? I think you've put about four questions (laughs) in one. Um, For me, I see it that Brexit, if it happens, I'm kind of resigned to the fact that it will happen, is going to have a huge impact on the street. But the politicians won't notice. And homelessness has already gone up. Homelessness has gone up. But in terms of the politicians, I don't know that they're too resilient. They're too resilient. They, you know, they, they are in a position, Mr Johnston or Johnson is able to walk away and get a job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mrs May is able to have a nice job. These are people that have a resilience. But for the person on Bath Road in Salford or Kennedy Road in Salford, that's where the impact's going to be. Mm. That's where the impact's going to be. It's going to be on the average citizen and the politician isn't going to notice. And what do you think? Do you think Britain can come back together as a society? Because we're very divided at the moment. Do you think we can bridge that divide? Um, uh, well, I can give you two sides, I guess. Um, on my more optimistic days, I think, yes, I think people need to be more informed. And luckily, there are lots more opportunities via social media to talk about some of the issues that we need to discuss so that we can come together and be... I don't know, a nation that it's not tolerant but open because tolerance indicates that 
you can reach your tolerance limit. And I think that clearly hasn't worked. So I think what we should be aiming for is an open and accepting nation. So I think that could happen. On the other hand, to a certain degree, I am kind of happy about Brexit. This sounds terrible because it's brought some of the issues that we've been talking about for years to the surface. Mm. As a Mm. black woman navigating this space, I I knew that racism was not just new and shiny and just came out after Brexit. Mm. It's been there for a while. Granted, after Brexit, someone left some poop outside my um, house. Um, So I guess people got bolder. I think it it would just make things more difficult, particularly for people of color, um, disabled people who would just stand out more and people are bolder. But on the other hand, if you have any sort of opportunities, you might leave. And that would create a situation where there is a lack of people that they need for various reasons. And at the same time, people who have been displaced, people who are seeking asylum, people who are refugees would still be put in a situation that's uncomfortable. There will be cases where children who are born here and maybe their parents grew up or live in Spain and they are uh, people who seek asylum what would happen there? Mm. Like, what about their human rights? Are they just not deserving? So I think that's... Well, that's a very interesting point you raise, but actually, because I agree with you, I think, I don't think Brexit necessarily caused a lot of the stuff, but I think it drew, it drew it out, Mm. didn't it, in terms of... It was the Trump effect. Yes, I think in some way, although we actually preceded Trump, Brexit came, (laughs) but I think Brexit kind of helped Trump, actually, um, a little bit. But Shirley, what about you? Kind of final word from you, really. How do you think your life will change with Brexit? And also, would you like to have another referendum? Would you like to... Absolutely. I'm very for the people's vote. I actually believe people didn't really know what they were voting for in the first instance. It's certainly a mess now because nobody really knows how it's going to go. If we do opt for Brexit and we don't get a people's vote and we have to come out of the EU, I certainly think people are going to be more impoverished, Mm -hmm. both financially because I I do believe we are net importers of things just like food and and goods and services. So therefore, I think that things are going to cost more. I also think as a consequence that more people are going to be swept down the plug hole of poverty. And that worries me. But also culturally, we're going to be poorer. You know, we've had so many people coming and going. We're a very rich tapestry of people and for people not to be so welcoming to people from other cultures. I think that's really tragic because we've all got a lot to offer. In my local neighbourhood in Keithley, I sometimes see there's a graffiti artist that goes round and he says he's spray painting around on the phone boxes. More love, less hate. I think we need more of that, please. What a fantastic message on which to end our discussion. Thank you so much to all my guests for joining me. A very, very powerful discussion. And I think the takeaway for me is very much, you know, you can't have this debate just through the very dry, arid lens of statistics. Mm. The stories are so incredibly important because they bring to life the the humanity of the situation. The statistics allow you to be very emotionally disconnected. And I think telling the human stories, as you have all very kindly done, is incredibly important. And as you've all sort of raised, this isn't about being deserving or undeserving. A lot of this is about luck and circumstances beyond your control. And your lives can turn on a sixpence sometimes. And you would expect in a civilised society for us to have the empathy to have a security net there for everybody because one day every single one of us might need it. Thank you very much for joining me. I've been Aisha Hazarika. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.